Hey guys, welcome to a, uh, a rehash show, uh, a, a bonus show, and, and a kind of I took an old audio that I did. I'll just throw some pictures up there and, and put this on YouTube because I think it's interesting. And and I don't know, for the real mafia aficionado, a student of the mafia and investigating the mafia, why this is a now retired agent. Bill Owsley, uh, who retired from the Kansas City office, was my friend for a long time, still is. I still see him quite often. And I asked him to tell about the formation of the top hoodlum squad, uh, the early efforts by the FBI to investigate the mafia. You know, on uh, November the 14th, 1957, I believe it was. I know somebody will correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, the... Uh, Sergeant Edgar Cresswell, uh, New York State police officer, uh, raided the mob enclave or meeting at Joseph Barbera's home in upstate New York, became famous as the Appalachian meeting. They indicted everybody they could identify, and they had all the mob bosses from all over the United States were attending that meeting, including Nick Sabella and a guy named Joe Filardo from Kansas City. Now, out of that, Jedgar Hoover and, and a lot of police departments and, and state patrols and, and anybody that investigates crime got convinced that there was a mafia. There was a national criminal organization, which meant that it took a national effort to have any effect on them. And, you know, on a local level, people knew that there was an organization that was involved with politics and paid off politicians and seemed to be able to get away with a lot in the court system systems. And and so it, it was like a, a, a hidden secret, a well-known, not hidden, a well-known secret in every major city in the United States, including the FBI. But they needed to get Washington on, the, on board. And so Hoover then formed the, what they called the Top Hoodlum Squad, which uh, kind of the early days of it, one of the first ones that was formed was in Chicago and the uh, uh, well-known and infamous, if you will, uh, agent Bill Romer was part of it and the Operation Lockstep on Sam Giancana. And, and when they really had this squad that their only job was to go after the mafia. They didn't have, they didn't go after bank robbers. They had a bank robbery squad. They didn't go after uh, theft from interstate shipment or auto theft. They had squads for that or white collar crime. Whatever the crime was, they, they started investigating the mob. Then if they could implicate them in one of those crimes, then they worked those crimes in with their mob investigation. And, and so I asked Bill if he could talk to us about how they formed that first top hoodlum squad in Kansas City because he was not maybe one of the very first, but he was really early on in that. And there was just a few people in the squad. And they didn't know what they were doing. They didn't know who the mob guys were in Kansas City and and how they developed that and, and how they worked. I know I know one of the stories that he has told me before and it's not in that one was about working early gamblers and, and how they uh they needed to find where the phone was and they had a bookie that was going into an apartment building but they couldn't figure out which apartment building or which uh, apartment he went into they didn't have cameras back then and so they put some kind of uh, infrared dust on the uh, in the entry hallway and so when the guy walked through it he would walk up the stairs and then go into his apartment then they came back with an infrared light and 
followed his footprints up to the apartment. Now, it, it, what's funny is their, their first go at this, the extension cord on the light wasn't quite long enough. They had to go back and do it a second time, but they, they found the apartment. They put a tap on that phone and, you know, the rest is history. They started taking down, you know, a guy for sports betting. Now that's all illegal today. Go figure. <laughs> so <clears throat> just settle back and, and listen to uh, this old interview of Bill Owsley telling about the formation of the top hoodlum squad. Oh, just a little, uh, he has two books out there on Amazon. I'll put links on there. It's open city, which is a story of organized crime in Kansas city, starting with the turn of the century up until the 1960s, maybe. And then the second one mobsters in our midst is really the story of his career after he got here in 64, 65, I believe. And, and up until the end of his career, which he was a case agent for the, what we call the straw man case where they took down, uh, uh, you know, <clears throat> you had the department of justice took down, you know, Chicago, Cleveland, Milwaukee, Kansas city, the heads of those mob families and all the skimming in Las Vegas. So here's Bill Owsley. Well, uh, the uh, fallout from Appalachian was uh, was enormous, and uh, it changed a lot of people's thinking and uh, as to what was really out there. And uh, Hoover really moved very rapidly uh, following the uh, uh, uncovering of the conclave, and he uh, he uh, put together what he would call the top hoodlum program. And all of the offices uh, around the country uh, were instructed uh, to start dedicating uh, personnel to the investigation uh, of, uh, of, of the uh, uh, organized crime generally and, of course, more specifically, this Italian branch that seemed to be so well uh, coordinated. So uh, that was the beginning of what later came to be uh, labeled the organized crime program. You know, there, there's a book, uh, many of you may have read this book or heard of it. There was an FBI agent at, at the time uh, in 1957 named William Romer. And the name of the book is Romer, Man Against the Mob. And he was, he was assigned to what became known as the Top Hoodlum Program uh, anti-racketeering. It was had a like a little tagline: "Top Hoodlum Program Anti-Racketeering." He said that uh, this was on uh, November twenty-seventh, nineteen fifty-seven. A furious Hoover declared war on the mob. Hoover sent out a tough, no-holds-barred edict and a letter to all field offices entitled "The Top Hoodlum Program Anti-Racketeering." He also found a particular law that they were going to use, and it was called the Hobbs Act. It had been on the books for quite a while, and it made what they called racketeering, uh, particularly been applied to labor racketeering, but not particularly to organized crime. Well, they were going to start applying the Hobbs Act to organized crime. You remember the Hobbs Act, Bill? Remember how yeah. that work? Yeah, Hobbs Act uh, encompassed extortion, in uh, restraint of interstate trade. So uh, if I went over to the uh, Budweiser distributor uh, and tried to strong arm him, uh, as they did in those days back, uh, back then, more <clears throat> uh, extortion was pretty common with uh, the racketeers. Uh, and since the beer uh, 
uh, traveled in interstate uh, commerce, it was a violation of this Hobbs Act. Uh, in fact, uh, we impl- we uh, used it in Kansas City in uh, a River Key investigation. Uh, uh, they had extorted Fred Bonadonna, a, a bar owner, and we found that, of course, uh, his uh, bar uh, equipment and uh, other things traveled in interstate commerce. So uh, we could uh, apply the Hobbs Act. You know, Bill, um, the word racketeering or, or a racket, we've used that for years. Now, what does that exactly mean, racketeering or a racket? I read this one definition, and it kind of made sense to me that it's uh, it's providing a service for which somebody doesn't really need, and you require them to pay money for that service. For example, if, if uh, you're going to provide protection, that would be a protection racket. If I come to your little corner store and say, you know, uh, Mr. Owsley, uh, got a nice little store here. You know, you probably need insurance and, and you don't want your store to, you know, maybe have a smoke bomb some night. And when the customers are all in here, you don't want your windows broken out. You give me 50 bucks a week, then I'll make sure that that doesn't happen. That would be an example of, of the extortion racket, correct? Well, yeah. And I, that may, <clears throat> that certainly is an applicable uh, definition, but I think it became, Racketeering uh, developed uh, to extend uh, to the types of criminality because you could include bookmaking, loan sharking. Uh, in a way, they are a service uh, to the public. But it, um, I think the term came to be used as to a form of activity that had structure. Uh, it had uh, longevity. Uh, it was uh, money-making. Uh, it, it had uh, personnel of various levels involved. So it was run, it was a criminal activity run like a business. Like I say, gambling, loan sharking, uh, labor, uh, 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 labor violations. Well, they're extorting money, they're cheating on their double billing. There's all sorts of, uh, uh, they're stealing from the dues. Uh, they're setting up paper locals which don't exist, uh, and uh, there's all forms. And uh, when you say labor racketeering, we're discussing the fact that these criminals and their union uh, affiliates or work or the people working with them, uh, they combine all of this together in a business-like fashion. Uh, and uh, in my estimation, when you have that set up, then you you have an activity that's a racket. These five guys that go out and hold up a uh, 7-Eleven store uh, one day, and when they're out of money, they hold up a grocery store. But there's no real organization to it. So yeah, you could you could uh, you know just a straight out murder. That's not particularly a racket. Or no. a straight out robbery is not a racket. Uh, a straight-out burglar is not a racket, but uh, or an embezzlement is not a racket. But when you have a engage in a pattern of these activities with an organization, then you become then you develop a pattern of racketeering, and so they all will fit in under. Yeah, it, it, it's putting to me. It's simply putting criminal activity uh, on a business corporate type of basis. Uh, as I say, there's structure, there's organization, there are rules that apply, there are various levels. 
for example, as you mentioned, you know, burglars, maybe it's not a racket, but if you have a guy casing places, you have a you have a guy that is their fence, you have the guy that's their driver, you start putting together an organizational structure with people that have positions and diff- different responsibilities, you have a, a leader and that type of thing, you're verging on that becoming a racket. Now it's a burglary racket rather than uh, sporadic burglar burglars uh, going out, picking and choosing people or places uh, willy-nilly. Mobs in the United States had pretty well refined this organizational aspect during the days of Prohibition. By 1957, they had gotten pretty sophisticated and, and kind of had the division of labor. You know, this guy does this, this guy does that, this guy oversees this. And, and so it was pretty sophisticated by, time, by the time the federal government really went into it big time. So, Bill, uh, when you came to Kansas City, were you initially assigned to the top hoodlum squad? Yeah, yeah, I— uh I had planned out and had sort of directed my career path trying to get into the organized crime program. And so when I got to Kansas City, I was assigned here. And uh, uh, we had, I think, uh, we had a a supervisor. It was a full squad. And we had uh, some 12 or 13 agents. Yeah, I see in, in uh, Mr. Romer's book, this was this was a little bit, what year was that? That was like 1964? Four when I got here. Okay, and, and so back in, in 57 or 58, whenever they first got it going in uh, Chicago, uh, he said he had five agents and a supervisor. And it's kind of interesting. Did you have a bunch of great big guys on your squad? He's a big guy. <laughs> no, and and he says he found Ray Stoltling, a former All-10 tackle from Purdue, uh, he found another guy from Boston College. And, yeah, uh, <laughs> well... I, uh, of interest, uh, uh, my supervisor at the time, or became my supervisor, was, uh, told me the story, uh, which may be of interest, uh, uh, how that began in Kansas City. Roma talks about Chicago. And uh, of interest would be the fact also that when the Bureau began the program, I think they had some preconceived notions as to what cities, and Chicago would be one of them. Uh, I'm surprised they only had five, but, uh, well, that was a start. But uh, uh, my uh, supervisor, Bill Quinn, uh, was telling me the story that when the word came out from Washington uh, in the Kansas City situation, they assigned it. The, organi- the top hoodlum program went to an existing criminal squad as just an adjunct of what they were doing. So it wasn't a full-fledged operation yet. Kansas City uh, uh, wasn't considered uh, a hotbed of organized crime, apparently, uh, by the Bureau. Uh, Bill said this because he said, we didn't get, like Roma did in Chicago, uh, there wasn't a huge uh, pressure put on them. It was an idea that we got to get started, and his supervisor at the time uh, didn't put undue uh, uh, pressure on them. And um, and it was just he and two others, uh, and he admitted that they didn't know nothing about 
this topic. He was assigned gambling, and he figured, well, if it's gambling, I'll look into policy racket, which is the numbers, uh, where bookmaking was much bigger. So uh, the uh, in his uh, description, uh, it wasn't until Bobby Kennedy came in uh, that the emphasis was more spread out across the country, not just those cities that were obviously hotbeds. Yeah, and, in, and in Kansas City, we, we had this long history of it, but uh, uh, it wasn't quite like Chicago. They had Al Capone in Chicago and Frank Nitti, and, and it had been, you know, it was in the, the, it was like a myth in Chicago, sure. this organized crime thing. And so so we didn't have that in Kansas City, a lot, lot lower profile, a right. lower key in Kansas City because of people like Nick Savella who, who knew the advantages to keeping a low profile. That dude always knew to try to keep a low profile if there's any way he could, it appeared to me. I, I again going back to Romer's book in comparison, and it, when he came on board, they picked out certain targets. Um, Tony Accardo, who was the boss at the time, or maybe he was kind of the boss behind the boss at this time. Sam Giancana, uh, who uh, he says he turned out to be the boss, having just succeeded uh, Murray the Camel Humphreys, uh, and who was a political fixer as well as a guy named Guzak, who was a political fixer up there, and they they picked out. Two or three other guys. One of them, the only one of them I really ever heard of was Paul Rica, uh, who was kind of well known. There's a cousin of Al Capone's that was still involved, Rocco Fischetti. So, so they picked out these guys. So, how did you start picking out targets in Kansas City? You know, you came from from New York. You don't know Kansas. City. You didn't grow up in Kansas. City. You don't really know anybody. Some of the agents that were here probably had started to get to know some you know local people and local policemen. And and so, how did you start picking targets? Well, the program had advanced rapidly uh, due to the fact they had developed two very high-level sources of information, confidential informants. So with that background, uh, you ha- we had somebody uh, that was outlining who the people were, where they stood, what they did. So by the time I got there... Uh, there were plenty of subjects to be looking at. That was not the mystery anymore. That that gave us that basis. Uh, when you have a high-level informant, you're way ahead of the game, of course. And, of course, it became the lifeblood of our program anyway, uh, was developing informants. Uh, so when I got there, uh, uh, we had the various... Uh, racketeering-type files uh, that had been started. So we start a racketeering file on these individuals as they're identified as attached to the organized crime outfit. So we'd have a Nick Savella file with the boss and on down the line. Uh, so you could always go to that file uh, and, uh, and get a background and a profile uh, uh, of who these people were. Now, the supervisor, when I got here, he had a theory which we all hated, but it was extremely effective. And what he would do, a new guy came in like myself, he would select a number of individuals who had been identified, uh, and there had been 
information developed in their file, uh, but there had been no updated report or had there been any current information, partially due to the manpower. And so when you have a new agent come in, uh, now you've got another body to go out and work somebody that hadn't been worked before. So the first thing you had to do is review all these files, and that was something you didn't want to do. The beauty of it was, as you read these files and these names came up, if you were diligent, you would go to that file and read up on who is this guy that's associated with the guy I'm dealing with, and then who is this guy and who's that guy. And so in a rapid form, uh, you're assimilating a lot of names and where they begin, where they belong. And then after you've reviewed this file, you'd go out and just hit the street and bring it, as he would say, up to date, which means what is he doing now? What does he drive? Where does he go? Uh, You know, all of the background you can file. What's his credit report? Does he owe anybody? Does he have a bank loan? Because I'll interject here one thing. The premise that we began with in the organized crime field was we would take, we discussed the Hobbs Act earlier, we would take any bureau jurisdiction law, whether it be bank robbery, loan fraud, uh, uh, check passing, uh, uh, arm rob- whatever, bank robbery, whatever we could pin on somebody if they were involved. So uh, if, if a guy went to the bank, we're going to look at his loan. Did he lie on uh, and make up? For- so our, our mission was to find out as much as we could about a person and develop the fact or hopefully develop a fact he was in violation of some federal law. Uh, the Bureau was generally built on squads based on various laws. We had a bank robbery squad, fugitive squad, white collar squad. Well, we could we could branch any of those. So the idea was go out and see what this guy is doing. And th- we got educated pretty quickly. You know, you mentioned to me once that uh, there was a lot of information uh, you gleaned from the, uh, was it the Federal Bureau of Narcotics at at this point in time? They had paid a lot of attention to it. And and I guess that was the precursor to uh, the modern DEA. They had a Federal Bureau of Narcotics out of the, what, the 30s and 40s even? Did it go back that far? You hear about these heroin cases on uh, uh, people with Italian last names out of New York and I believe even uh, uh, in Corky Savella in Kansas City, uh, Nick's brother didn't even have an old uh, heroin case out of the 30s or yeah. something. Yes, he did. So he did. You, you found that we had a, a an office here in Kansas City, a Federal Bureau of Narcotics. You can go to their files. and. Well, yeah. Well, I mean, the uh, uh, we would uh, peruse anyone. We certainly I spent I spent hours with the intelligence unit uh, because uh, they had. Uh, as you well know, uh, they had been at it for several years, too, and uh, were out there every day. They know who these people were. The Bureau of Narcotics was a uh, 
uh, a wealth of information because in the ensu- in the years prior to Apple Aiken, they were the only ones who uh, were talking about a syndicate such as La Cosa Nostra. No one else accepted it. It was not accepted generally anywhere, not just Mr. Hoover, who has been accused of ignoring it. Nobody felt that there was this type of organization this powerful uh, doing what they did. So they, uh, and the Narcotics Bureau, as you say, had been very active during the 30s and 40s. One of the largest uh, drug uh, cartels was the Kansas City Narcotics Syndicate, uh, which were the Italians. Then uh, uh, I even got a lot of information from the Kansas City Crime Commission because when Kefauver hearings came in 1950, uh, they relied more on the Crime Commission than on police agencies because there hadn't been much done. There hadn't been much done about uh, organized crime. And the Crime Commission had been put together specifically because of organized crime as it was somewhat accepted in that era. Yeah. Well, that's why that's why it shook up the uh, the world uh, uh, of law enforcement, of legislators, of news people. Uh, there were hearings. There were legislative hearings. There were newspaper uh, things. Everybody uh, uh, went to town uh, because it the impact of what it represented, as you just aptly described was, my God, you know, how, how can this be? These were boss people from all over the and from uh, uh, other countries. There was a guy from, I think, from Sicily or Italy. And uh, uh, so uh, the impact was, was startling uh, and t- t- turned the whole corner. Uh, you mentioned the Kansas City Crime Commission, and that's that's an interesting little entity that that still meets, but it's not what it used to be. No. Now, uh, I would bet that uh, it uh, it probably started really out of Pendergast times when the when the uh, new broom swept clean, shall we say, the kind of the silk stocking Republicans moved in, and and the government moved on Pendergast, which was a Democrat organization. They uh, uh, and kicked him out of office. He goes to jail for income tax uh, evasion. But the the entire every branch of the government in Kansas City, including the police department, was just corrupt as hell by that point in time. So you have new people coming in, and and I, they probably formed that Kansas City Crime Commission sometime after that. But it's kind of it was truly a way to to gather in, information. On these kinds of crimes, these uh, economic crimes, if you will, uh, extortion and and loan sharking and and gambling and those kinds of things, and uh, uh, then it moves on up into the fifties, and they're gathering information. Sometimes it's just from newspaper reporters via paper clip or newspaper clippings, but it's also from their own sources, I believe, and and they kept files, and and so it became a, a like a kind of a little private intelligence unit in a way. It sounds to me like. The concept of a crime commission was formed in New Orleans uh, by a gentleman, and I don't remember his name, uh, but uh, uh, and it, it had to do with uh, the idea of the business community had to do their part uh, because of these uh, gangsters, because the gangsters had an impact on the business world. 
And uh, Kansas City's, I don't know when they were formed, but they were in business, I think, in the late 40s uh, because they were already operating when the Kefauver uh, representatives stopped into Kansas City and said, you know, we're coming here. And they had to work up a agenda of who are, who are we going to call before this committee? Who were they? What did they do? And what have you. And uh, so the Crime Commission was uh, intimately involved in, the, in that process. And another source, uh, uh, which is probably not generally recognized, and I, I determined this from having uh, looked at Crime Commission files and been uh, friendly with the commissioners uh, over the years, some of the old-line investigative reporters at the Star, they had a wealth of information. And so we had the Crime Commission guys, and, and by the way, the Crime Commission at that time uh, hired investigators, and they were usually ex-law uh, enforcement. In fact, the first one of the first Crime Commission directors was an ex-FBI guy. So he set up a system... Uh, similar to the FBI, how they filed reports. And looking at their files, I felt like I was still at the office. And uh, they developed sources, uh, and they followed up on cases, uh, sometimes pressing the police department or the uh, DA to do something. And uh, so they were a great source of information. Uh, Interesting. Yeah. Uh, Now, the uh, uh, intelligence unit. So, uh, you know, that's near and dear to my heart, as, as you yeah. know, and, and I learned a lot from one of the guys who was one of the uh, first, uh, well, actually, I learned a little bit from both of them uh, uh, in, in different areas of my career uh, uh, that were some of the first people to start. Now, we had a chief of police uh, in, uh, when, when uh, you first met him in 1964, and they were already going, so... In the early 60s, we had a chief of police named Clarence Kelly, who would go on to be the director of the FBI. Well, Clarence Kelly had been an FBI agent. He was originally from Kansas City. And we had a, a chief before that named Bernard Brannon that, that was he was an okay guy, but he was kind of connected to a lot of politicians. And, and something happened. I don't even know the whole story, but he was they needed a, a new chief. And I think they wanted one that was squeaky clean. I believe there had been some scandals uh, I believe the scandal was, I think Ray Kenny once told me the scandal was they were trying to manipulate crime statistics by not uh, uh, filing the appropriate robbery report. For example, you can make the robbery rate go way down if you didn't turn in the report. And if the report didn't get turned in, didn't get counted for the uh, FBI uniform crime statistics, then the robbery never happened as far as uh, the country was concerned. I believe that was maybe part of what happened with Bernard Brandon. But anyhow, they, they hired this new squeaky clean, former Kansasinian, square-jawed FBI agent named Clarence Kelly. And, and he was that. He was squeaky clean. He was square-jawed and, and tough as nails. He, he grew up in Northeast, uh, so he knew the city, went to Northeast High School, uh, where a lot of the uh, uh, La Cosa Nostra people in Kansas City had grown up in that same area. And he formed the intelligence unit kind of based on probably the FBI top hoodlum program, I would imagine, to, to work in uh, uh, conjunction or uh, connection with them. So 
When I was there, we had, uh, I think it was uh, either 10 or 12, kind of depending on what was going on. And Clarence Kelly uh, formed this with, I believe, four to six. Uh, Bill brought us a newspaper article. Does that say how many uh, detectives they started with? No, but I'm talking to one of the early guys. uh, There was a a captain assigned and um, four or five uh, detectives in the beginning. And they were they were worked for the investigations unit, I believe, like the probably the investigations unit commander who oversaw you know robbery and homicide and those kinds of uh, burglary and all those kinds of cases. They start seeing some of the same names pop up. Now Ray Kenny told me a pretty good story, and I don't know if Doolin was with him on there, but Jim Doolin and Ray Kenny. Uh, Jim Doolin, I worked for him when he first left the unit uh, and got promoted to sergeant, and I was a brand-new officer, and, and he taught me a lot about being a policeman. And then I come to the intelligence unit, and I meet Ray Kenny, and he taught me a lot about being an investigating officer in the uh, intelligence unit. But Ray told me a story that uh, he was went down to what we call the North End or Columbus Park or Little Italy, and, and so there's a gambling club up the street. And so he's wanting to, they're trying to identify people. You know, he comes in, he doesn't really know who's who. Ray, Ray's like me, he's from the country. He didn't grow up in the city. And he's got sources out there and he's got names and he's got old reports. He sees these same names coming up and, and got the crime commission. He's probably looked over their reports and, and he, he's trying to make sense of it all. And, and so to see how people interact with each other and put faces with names because everybody didn't have a mugshot back then, and there certainly weren't any surveillance photos back then. And he's in an alley, and, and he's looking up the street. These guys stand around out in front of the social club, as they will, smoking cigarettes and smoking and joking, as we say. And and, and all of a sudden, some little old guy in the neighborhood walks up behind him, and I said, oh, well, yeah. He said, what are you doing, man? He said, you, you're trying to figure out who those guys are. And Ray said, well, yeah, we are. <laughs> he had to know Ray. <laughs> So Ray, th- this guy says, well, that's so-and-so, and that's so-and-so, and that's so-and-so. And so he was able to put a lot of, you know, actual faces to a lot of names and as he saw how they related. So that's that's how he got his start, trying to figure out who was who. Well, yeah, Dolan, Dolan tells me the story of the beginning, and they didn't have a car uh, assigned uh, to the unit. They had really nothing. Uh, he said, I think our equipment was a pair of binoculars. They had, uh, there was no training. Uh, there was no uh, orientation period. He said that uh, the captain said, go out there and find them. <laughs> yeah. That was their instructions. Uh, and they were not to be involved in uh, uh, active uh, investigations of uh, uh, of illegality, but to find out who these people were and what they did. And uh, that uh, uh, that's pretty much, I'm sure, how so many intelligence units began because uh, there was a wealth of information out there. If you went and found it, just reading the Kefauver hearing would be very helpful. But, of course, Kelly also had the fact that Nick and Filardo had been identified uh, as attendees, uh, that created a lot of newspaper print. And so uh, I think there was an impetus also uh, from, again, from Appalachian uh, to form this squad. And uh, eventually it went uh, to uh, the uh, suburban 
Overland Park and uh, Lenexa and, and uh, Independence and cities around the country, police departments found it was imperative to have an intelligence function. Oh, yeah, all over. And, and, and actually in, in California, and I want to say, oh, it was in the early 60s, I think, they formed a, a national organization called Law Enforcement Intelligence Units, or LEIU. LEIU. Yeah. And, and everybody in, in any major police department and highway patrol would, that had an intelligence unit function that was dedicated slow, uh, solely to intelligence was a member of that organization. And they would, uh, like in Kansas City, we would send uh, – Fingerprint cards and pictures and a card with uh, three-by-five cards. Only they were bigger than three-by-five cards. They were more like a whole page, of typewritten page of information about our top hoodlums in Kansas City and what they did and where, where they'd been and who they were connected to and send that. And they kept a national file on, on uh, everybody in the United States from local officers, which was separate from the FBI files. The FBI had their own sets of files. Now, the organized crime squad... Uh in the early stages, and and when I still got here, uh, you have to recognize that there were no statutes directed at organized crime activity. Uh, so we had really nothing to investigate as such in the sense of going out and saying, we're going to make a case uh, on whatever it may be. We didn't have a violation as our basis. Uh, interestingly enough, the Kefauver Committee, which was extremely uh, eye-opening and produced a ton of information, the Congress never followed up on their recommendations. There was only one piece of legislation that came out of the Kefauver hearings, although they recommended wiretap legislation, they recommended a whole slew of stuff. Congress passed one piece of legislation, interstate racketeering and interstate travel in aid of racketeering. Uh, And then it had several categories, arson, gambling, and what have you. There were four or five categories. That was truly the only law. In fact, we used to laugh and say, well, our basic law, the only one on the books was the lottery tickets from Ireland or something. That, but in reality, we had the one law. Uh, but the, the uh, mob guys, uh, they weren't born yesterday. And when uh, things started to uh, get hot for them in a sense that they were now in the eye of the storm. They have legal advice, and they, uh, Nick is very sharp, and they understood that that statute required interstate travel. So, for example, we could go out and find out that uh, Otto Solero is a bookmaker and operating a huge book, and we can even talk to some gamblers who would say, I bet with Otto Solero, but he, we couldn't prove interstate. So the law was really benign as far as we were concerned. Uh, you had to have interstate. So we, in the beginning, were purely an intelligence operation. Uh, as I say, if we lucked out and found them uh, committing a bank robbery uh, or loan fraud 
or something that a statute that's on the books, and that never happened, very difficult to deal with, we would go after it. But as to having organized crime laws, there weren't any. So we were we were developing information about structure, about the activities, how they operated where they operated. It was almost, I would, looking back now, from from now to back then, I would say we were sort of preparing for the time when we would have laws. We would know everything there was to know, and we would be very effective once the laws were passed. And um, that takes time. Takes time. So, uh, back to how did you develop well, when, early you know, on? first of all, uh, we all have a different style. You know, I can give, I, I've given a two-hour lecture on informant <laughs> development. So, you know, like when you look at a murder, you say, what is it? It's sex, money, or, or what have you. Well, with these people, some of them, uh, it was simply uh, an approach to them. You get a feel for whether you can talk to them. Now, in the, in the interim, you've done background. I may know the guy is in debt. I may know he's screwing around on his wife, and uh, I may know that he has a bad loan somewhere. I may, I'm going to try to develop something I can use. Uh, now, the motivation can come from uh, that I've got something on him, he, or he believes I have something on him, uh, or that it's a, a financial thing. He's just going to do it because he wants to make some money out of it. Then you have some people that have been wronged by the mob. Uh, they're, they're out there operating, but they're as hateful against them because of what has been done to them, uh, that it's you walk in and all of a sudden it's laid out for you. You know, it's, it's that easy sometimes. Not often. Uh, one of the main guys that we talked to, who I name in the book so I can name him because we had to surface him uh, and he testified, so I'm not telling a, uh, a story. But his name was Mike Ruffalo. Yeah, how'd, Mike, you, how'd you develop him? Mike That's... Ruffalo hated the mob. He hated what they did. To, uh, there was a lot of stories about uh, because they don't treat their people well at many times. Your Your pitch has to be, you know, a lot of times these people you find are not as concerned or they're concerned about their security, uh, but they're not really sure what what they can do about it. So you have to, for example, I would always tell a guy, this is my name now. I'm not Bill Owsley anymore. And this is your name. And the guy sort of looks at, well, I'm trying to protect you here, partner. Now, you never call this number. You never do this. The way we're going to do this, and we'll never do that, and we'll never do... And pretty soon, you, you hopefully, you can show that your concern is so great for their security, you overcome the fear. Uh, sometimes it doesn't work. But, I mean, it's all part of informant development. And it's an art. Uh, and uh, you have to work at it. And uh, some agents uh, never could do it or didn't want to do it. Said they said they weren't able to do it. A- anybody could develop an informant under my uh, 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 idea uh, if you follow 
a pattern. You you know, some are going to be more successful. Some just have it in them. Yeah, that's true. That's, that's placement in the same way. Some but, of them could right. do it and some of them but couldn't. The, but the motivations are, are, are just across the board, you know, and uh, – uh, and you have to find that motivation, uh, or hope hope to fall upon it, uh, or develop it as your. And many times it's just going back and going back and going back. I, re, I, I another, uh, uh, I remember uh, 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 Lee Flossy, who was a agent and my partner. Uh, his theory, his procedure on one guy anyway uh he just everywhere this guy was that's where he was he'd be leaning against his car when he came out from lunch he'd he'd take a tray and sit down at the table with him you know and and in one occasion down at myron green's cafeteria lee comes in he sees him he gets his tray we were coming for coffee he said i'll see you later he goes and puts his tray down the guy had just bought his entire lunch or, or breakfast i think it was lunch the whole thing he saw lee got up and left it there and walked out <laughs> but eventually eventually uh, he wore him down i'll be darn interesting that's a great story you know he said uh, it, it eventually it just uh well it, th- th- there's always something behind it too you know, that push them over the edge because some of these guys, you'd never make an informant. Take them up in a plane and tell you, I'll push you out and they won't talk to you. Yeah. I mean, sure, when you're super secret, you got a whole organization with, uh, you know, 100 years or more of of history of of being this powerful organization and people don't normally talk and and you, you, you you don't follow the regular rules, well, you can get away with a lot of stuff. And they had protection, too. They had uh, political protection and... uh, they had high-powered lawyers, and uh, they would fight you to the death in court. And uh, we had judges that were lenient, and they got away with stuff, and they'd been getting away with stuff. But uh, Supreme Court or one of the higher courts said that there was no, th- this was not a case. Well, only under court order. Court order. Irregardless of what anybody claims out there, you couldn't extort them law enforcement the for the way. most part follows the rules. This has been an interesting little look back into the starting. Tell them a little bit. Of, let's talk about when you first met Ray Kenny and Jimmy Doolin and started working with the local intelligence guys. How did that come about? Each of, each of us uh, on the squad uh, had different ideas of how to go about. The job, you know, it wasn't like you had a uh, uh, a fugitive investigation that you did X, Y, or Z, uh, and then you took the next file and did it again. We were we were freelancing, and I felt that uh, once I learned uh, about there was an intelligence unit, you know, I said, well, you know, that's a source of information. That's an asset. Then when I met the guys, you know, they were great guys. And uh, knowledgeable guys and a chemistry built up, you know, and it was a regular stop, you know, for for me. Uh, not every agent, I, I, I would say to some guys on our squad at the time, didn't even know what the intelligence unit was. <laughs> uh, their idea of how to go about it maybe was uh, singular to the office, you know, our files. And I don't think a lot of guys went to the crime commission like I did. Well, guys, as you know by now, that was my friend, retired FBI agent Bill Owsley, who told about how they first worked with the intelligence unit in Kansas City, how they formed the Top Hulu squad, 
what they did, how they operated, how they developed informants, how he developed informants. So kind of an inside inside baseball look at, at how the FBI works. Uh, you know, a lot of people accuse the FBI of doing nefarious things over the years, but I want to tell you something. I've known Bill Owsley for 40 years, I think, and and he and and a lot of other agents, and I never saw anything nefarious out of the FBI. As a matter of fact, I thought they were a little too straight. Uh, they could have they could have slid a few things here and there, but you know that that was up to us locals to do that. I think, and and I didn't really do that either. Uh, it's uh, it's just not worth it. it. It is not worth it to me. So I hope you enjoyed this inside look at the Top Woodland Squad, and uh, be sure to look out for motorcycles because you know I like to ride a motorcycle. I'm getting ready to leave to go on a ride with my cousin today. I have to to look at the new Indian motorcycles that are having a demonstration. Uh, a demo day at, at the Indian dealership. Not going to buy one, but I just want to, you can go out and ride all the different models for free for, for a day. We get on one for 30 minutes and go try another one for 30 minutes and and, and it will be fun. I appreciate y'all listening in. And, and if you have a friend or relative or view yourself, have problems with PTSD and you're a vet, why well, go to the Veterans Administration website and get that hotline number and, and call up. There's help available. Thanks a lot, guys.